Our Father, we do delight to sing Blessed Jesus and acknowledge you as our Savior and our shepherd in life, the shepherd of our souls, our guide, our Lord, our Master, our King, the one who is returning, the one in who we have the great privilege and delight to serve. And yet, how sluggish we are sometimes in our service, how often we are in the adoration of our hearts and the full affection of our lives. And so we are also a humble people who depend on your grace to know that we stand only in grace. We stand in your forgiveness. But what a perfect and complete and glorious forgiveness it is as we sung as our first song this morning. And so we delight to come as a forgiven people, as a redeemed people, as a thankful and grateful people to you and ask you to help us, to ask us you to show yourself to us in ever-increasing measures of your glory and prepare our hearts even as we open your word together, not only to hear the voice of our shepherd, uh, but that you would prepare our hearts to, for the table that you have established um, to picture our unity with you and one another. Refresh our hearts by faith. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Of course, we begin last week, verses one through 17. Uh, We didn't make it all the way through, uh, but we'll uh, plan on doing that uh, this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter eight. And just to remind us, the overall idea as we come back into the book of Ecclesiastes Uh, particularly in chapter 8, is how wisdom lives under the providence of God in light of injustice in the world, essentially, in light of the injustices of the world. And and this is certainly not only a a theme for Solomon, it's something that, to varying degrees, we all know by experience, either by the experience of having uh, injustice done to us, or by merely the experience of seeing injustice in the world around us. We We certainly have a great emphasis on justice and the idea of justice in our current culture, uh, but very little understanding of what justice actually is, and very little of it actually lived out in people's lives. And in fact, uh, just as a little footnote here, uh, we may next week or soon coming up uh, take a look at the idea of justice as it's presented in our culture and what does Scripture say about it, and particularly the idea of social justice. But for now, we come into Ecclesiastes 8, and Solomon is instructing us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit on how we are to live as the people of God, as a wise people, as a people who want to glorify God in light of an unjust world, and in light of a world where we stand under authority, rightly so, because God has established human authority, but we stand under this authority with all of its imperfections and often corruptions and certainly its failures. And how do we live wisely under that as the people of God? And so we began to look at that last week. And let's jump back into it again this morning. And so uh, last week, I, usually I read it, but this, I'm going to read it as we go through it just for the sake of time uh, this morning. And so we looked for last week at the first six verses, and namely that wisdom teaches us to be cautious, that a caution that responds patiently to authority established by God, recognizing that it's marred by sin, recognizing that it's failing or has failures, recognizing that uh, human authority is imperfect, and yet we live under it by God's design and God's plan. And so we are to have a, a wise cautiousness or a cautious wisdom. Let's read the first six verses and then we'll 
just briefly review those points. He says in verse 1, Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the commandment of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavily upon him. And so the first area of wisdom, or the first nugget of wisdom, of living under this civil authority, as we will, living under here the authority of the king, is to be cautious. And how do we work out this cautious wisdom? First, he says, follow the instructions of the king, follow the edict of the king. I say in verse 2, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. And we looked at the different ways that oath before God could be taken, but probably the best way to understand that is the oath of God of the people of Israel to the king established by God. In other words, that the king has a divine authority. The king is there by divine commission, by divine appointment, and we considered that. That all authority comes from God. And so he's saying that authority over you is in fact God's exercise of his authority. And therefore we are to obey the king. And that is uh, our civil authority in, in the broader context. Uh, and that is our obedience to God. And even when there are times that obedience means that the king is acting foolishly. Even when he, he makes decisions that are either not motivated by righteousness and don't really conform to a wise leadership, a wise rulership over what has been entrusted to them. But he says a wise person is cautious and doesn't, in verse 3, hurry to leave him, doesn't show open disdain for that authority, and doesn't join in any kind of rebellion. Now that evil matter could be, again, is a bit of an ambiguous statement uh, there. The, the evil matter, it could be the word of evil, better understood as an evil matter, uh, could be an evil matter in terms of a rebellion meant to go against the authority of the king. In other words, don't join yourself in some kind of secret rebellion. It could be uh, how you don't show open disdain, but you are cautious with how you fulfill the edict of the king or the command of the king because it is not wise. And so it could be taken either way. I think probably the best way to understand is, is, a, is a mixture of both, but understanding don't, don't openly resist or secretly resist the command of the king. That would be unwise. It would be unwise. And, and the second part of this wisdom then is after obedience is uh, uh, do not openly reject him. Don't secretly rebel in opposition. That's the second. Thirdly is work wisely within your circumstances under the providence of God. That's verse 5. Uh, uh, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. So there is a, a right way to function within uh, the circumstances that you find yourself and under civil authority. And so then we, we ended there with considering Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 particularly, as God commands us, even as believers who are not under a king, but who are yet under a civil authority established by God in government, and how to live wisely. And essentially, if we boil it all down, it could be this. Submit to the authority that God has placed over us and disobey only when it causes sin. 
And what kind of sin? Either a sin of omission or a sin of commission. Even if it forbids us to do something that God commands us to do or tells us to do something that God forbids us to do. In those cases, we as Christians then are not under the human authority, but under the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And so we've considered those things. Now, secondly, a part of this wisdom is to be patient and understand that human authority is temporary and ultimately is under God's purposes and God's authority. And that's the second point, really beginning in verse 7 down to verse 14. In other words, again, to be patient, understanding that human authority is temporary and subservient to God's purposes. In verse 7, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, for those who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. It is futility. So go back up to verse 7. As we see his explanation of how we are to live patiently as the people of God and wisely under this authority. And the first thing that he confronts us with is the limitations of human power and human authority. He says immediately, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority. And then he mentions several examples of that. In other words, even though we are to live under the king because the king has an authority given him by God, even that king's authority is limited, our authority is limited, and our ability to control the future is non-existent, really, either from the one under the king or the king himself. Because no one ultimately knows the future, and things often don't happen the way that we would expect them to happen. So ultimately, power and authority, which is the theme through all of Scripture, and particularly in Ecclesiastes, is the possession of God, not kings. No one knows what will happen. No one knows. And again, this is a a dose of reality. But nonetheless, even though no one knows what will happen, the exhortation here by Solomon is that it's better to be wise. It's better to be wise. Even though we can't control ultimately the outcome, and as he'll say later in the passages we read, that even sometimes if you are wise and you are righteous, you might still experience the fate of those who had done wicked. In other words, you might still experience persecution. You might still uh, still experience opposition while it seems those who do do wickedly have a a kind of ease uh, to their life. But nonetheless, it is still better to be wise. It is still better, as he'll say later, to fear 
God. But part of what enables this wisdom is to realize that all authority ultimately is under God's hand. The king may give an order, whether it be wise or foolish, but God can override him at any point. And even his decisions that stand fall under the sovereign hand of God. This is a very humbling statement and a a kind of humility that needs to be introduced into our understanding of human authority, which it sometimes seems so powerful. In fact, he says in verse 3, for he will do the king whatever he pleases. In other words, there's a sense of sovereignty that resides in those who possess authority humanly. And this is a reminder that whatever authority has been given and whatever sense of authority that one may have, it ultimately is nothing before God who works out his plan, not according to human wisdom, but according to his own wisdom. And if there's one thing that men like to think, if there's one thing that we like to think, it is that we are the source of everything that happens in our lives. If there's one thing that we like to hold on to, that we are the masters of our own fate, that we are the ones who will achieve whatever will come about by our own power, by our own resources, by our own intellect, that we are the ones who rule. There's a a poem that uh, you might be well uh, familiar with. It's called Invectus, and it captures... It captures this very well. There's a movie by that name, too. It opens up with this, this, this line. But here it is. It's short. Uh, it says this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be, for my, may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. And that is the way that we like to think as fallen humanity. It is by my resolve, it is by my determination, it is by my will, it is by my power, and it is by my strength. And Solomon immediately confronts us with this and says, no, it isn't. It isn't. No one knows what will happen, and who can tell him when it will happen? This is an example of the heart under the conditions of sin. It is at the very heart of what man succumb to in the temptations of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. Here's an opportunity to be like God, to have prerogatives of God, to have knowledge of God, to take advantage of this opportunity to be like him, to be the masters, as it were, of our own fate, to seek our own pleasure. And so she took and she gave to her husband, and so the fall And sin entered into the human experience. Now while God has given to man an incredible potential and a measure of authority to execute his will upon the earth, all human ability and authority ultimately stands under and is subject to God. And this is is the overall point that this statement falls under within not only the canon of scripture but of Solomon's own message. That ultimately it stands under and is subject to God's 
We are not the ultimate determiners of our faith. This is not to say, however, as a footnote, uh, 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 that we are hyper-Calvinists. Some of you are familiar with that term. That is not to say that we believe that it doesn't matter what we do. God's going to do what he's going to do, so we just go and we live by under whatever deterministic sense of fate might uh, or bring into our lives. It's not to say that. God ordains the means as well as the ends, and our choices have real consequences. It is to say, however, that our choices and our efforts aren't ultimate. That's the idea. And that in some mysterious way, God, even in our own choices and even in our own decisions, is working out his plan, his sovereign plan, such as the mystery of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. But what Solomon draws us back into immediately is to say that this is the basic building block of wisdom. And it gives perspective on how we are to live under the fallible and sometimes foolish authority that God places over us. To remember, it is not ultimate. It's not always understandable. We can't figure it all out, but it's not a deterministic sense of it doesn't matter what we do. It's still better to be wise, but have perspective. Have perspective. God is the only one that is ultimate. And so he emphasizes this in verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There's no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. This is an incredible statement of, in a sense, the, the sovereignty of God and the weakness of men. He says, you don't have authority over anything in the created world. You don't have authority to restrain the wind with the wind. If you'll remember, God made the similar point to Job when his pride was going to question God. And, and God spends several chapters, beginning in verse chapter 38, to say, Job, where were you? When all of these things were made, how, how do you know how the wind is commanded and how the animals give birth and what is going on in all of the created world? You don't know anything. And at the end of that, we're familiar with Job's words. He says, I'll, I'll shut my mouth then. I'll shut my mouth because I clearly don't know anything. I clearly don't know anything as certainly as God knows it and therefore I would be wise to stand gladly under his wisdom and his authority. And so that's the idea here. No man has authority to strain the wind. You don't control it. No, more, no man has authority over the length of his days, he says, or authority over the day of death. Nobody has, can determine the day that they die. Nobody determines the day that they are born. This falls under the sovereign hand of God. Jesus emphasized the same point when he talked about living a life of faith and trust. He says, and who of you by being worried can add an hour to your life? You can't control anything. You can't even control if you were to live for 60 more minutes uh, by your own determination. This falls under the hand of God. So live wisely under his hand and trust him. He says you have no authority over the circumstances of your life and requirements that can be opposed on you. He says there is no discharge in the time of war. In other words, if you find yourself in war, you don't have the freedom to just leave that, not without consequences. You don't have authority over what happens in that war, whether your life will be taken or whether your life will be spared. And you have no authority or over the power of wickedness, look what he says, nor will evil deliver those who practice it or those who possess it. And there's a sense of irony there, if it were literally, those who possess it. And the irony is this, is those who think that they have a control over it, that they're essentially the masters of even their evil deeds. And he says, no, not you or the king when he acts foolishly or wickedly. 
has ultimate authority over that and the outcome of it. There is no authority that resides ultimately in man is the idea here. God is the one who overrules it all. It's under God's authority that we stand. Uh, Maybe just as a footnote on that last one, the ultimate expression of this is uh, that came to my mind really is the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. So in the, in the kingdom of the Antichrist, you have the arrayed authority of all human authority, all spiritual authority, all demonic authority concentrated into one kingdom, really into one man, one system. And even that, Scripture tells us, is because God granted it, and when it has fulfilled his purposes, he will bring an end to that as well. He says, as a matter of fact, just as a footnote here, Speaking of the Antichrist, even the authority that's going to come to this, this final figure in, the, the, in promises of God, he says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God and blasphemed his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven, heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe, people, and tongue and nation was given to him. Who gave him that authority? God gave him that authority God gave him that authority to act for a certain amount of time Satan didn't give him authority to act for 42 months Satan would have an eternal kingdom if he could no God gave him that authority God gave the devil the authority that he would have to give to that human ruler the authority and when they have accomplished God's purposes he will bring an end to it all and so the idea here is this that there is, there is an authority of men, there is an authority that we are to live under, but we are to remember that every authority is under God, and we can't figure it out, and that's what, we'll, what he wrestles with as he goes through and what he has been wrestling with. And so he says, look, even though man has a kind of authority, it's not ultimate, God's purposes will be worked out, but even as God is working out his purposes, we realize that it allows the reality of injustice in the world. And so be patient knowing that what you can observe is not the end of the story. And and observation is a key part of Solomon's wisdom. Very much he repeats that I observed, I saw, I witnessed. He he comes to conclusions based on what he sees. And here he says, in, in in a sense, don't make your ultimate conclusions based on what you see because what you see does not always accord to reality of what God is doing. It's merely a moment. It's not, in essence, the end of the story. And so he says there in verse 9, I have seen and applied to my mind every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. I've seen the wicked buried and those who go in and out from the holy place. They are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. And he's talking here about the reversal, the reversal of, of the way things should be within the experiences of men. Now verse 10, let's make a note here. He says, I've seen the wicked buried and those who go in and out from the holy place uh, and they are soon forgotten. There's, there's two ways to take this, to translate and to take it. Uh, one is this way. He, he could be saying that those with power are honored in life and honored in death even though they acted wickedly. And even that they are given a religious kind of honor as they went in and out of the holy place, a place of worship, and they die being praised by men though their lives did not reflect the righteousness of God. 
It's one way. A second way to take it is that uh, here is that the wicked are receive an honor in life and they are accorded praise by men, even though they have evil deeds uh, accredited to them, but they die and are forgotten, and so it's futile anyway. What does it matter? What does it matter? But the broad point in either case is this, that the scales and sense of justice are often mocked and reversed in this life. The wicked receive honor, and whether they're forgotten or praised in death, they were still given power and authority on earth, and they didn't use it wisely, but they foolishly into the hurt of those who are God's people and to those who are good. And so there's a deep sense of futility, and which is how he ends it in verse 10. This too is futility. Futility in what sense? Futility because of the injustice. If you take it in the first way that they have honored in life and in death, the injustice is that the wicked are so offered honored in life, even those who maintain a religious facade and reuse religion as a cover for wickedness. Or, if we take it the second way, it's unjust because even though they, are die, they die and are forgotten, still their wickedness was unaccounted for. Even if they die and forgotten, which shows the futility of their life, is there any answer to the wickedness that they did while they were on earth? And that's probably the best way to take it, as we'll see as he continues his argument here. But both possibilities contain injustice, and that's the concern of his heart. Both are outside of the control of the righteous, and both show the futility of life, the futility of understanding, and the futility of doing anything about it. Ultimately, we experience injustice. And then he builds on this in verse 11. Why is it futility? Why is it futile to try to understand this? Why is it futile to try to take a control and, and rebel and for our own purposes to undo what God has done? Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. Because the sentence of an evil deed is not executed quickly. And again, he's bringing us here to face this reality that human authority is very often corrupt and it cannot be relied on to bring ultimate justice. It cannot. It won't. It won't bring an ultimate answer to the inconsistencies that we see in this world. In fact, very often justice is not carried out, which just gives an opportunity and environment for wickedness to flourish. So justice must be patient. That's the overall idea here again. To wait for God to make right all these wrongs. And there's a problem then with human authority. He's already identified it at the end of verse 29. Well, in other places, but of chapter 7. I found only this, that God and men made upright, but they have sought out many devices. In other words, the problem is, is that justice, human justice, is left into the hands of fallen humanity. Of men who are corrupt. As an interesting point, which is forgotten by many in our own culture, is that the very system of government that we operate under, the very American idea, understood the corruption of the human heart. Why do we have three branches of government and not a monarchy? Because they understood, as it was famously said, that power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts absolutely. That whenever you have power concentrated into an individual or even a very small group, it can only bring corruption and difficulty. 
Why do we have an executive branch, a judicial branch, a legislative branch? So that all the authority would not be in one. It would be a check and balance. What motivated that? It was because the founding fathers understood the corruption of the human heart. That injustice was already going to be inevitable to some degree, but it was a way to mitigate it, a way to lessen it, a way to somehow put some limits on it. And so this is an extremely important point to understand. Our justice system is structured to give the best possible human means of determining the truth and upholding justice, and yet it fails. Sometimes innocent people are punished. They're treated as the wicked, as he'll say later. Innocent people go to jail. Sometimes, and this happens more often, is that those who are guilty don't suffer the consequences. And that's what he focuses on here in verse 11. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. And in fact, we see this in our own current historical moment and cultural context. We see this. It's even championed in our day. We have the mantra, what? Defund the police. Defund them. Take away any authority from them that would be in any way able to be coercive or to bring about consequences for wrong deeds. Now, that's not exactly how they would take it, but that, in essence, is what it is and what has been the result of that. Defund the police. Catch and release so that criminals commit crimes over and over again, sometimes violent crimes where they're left out of prison for unjustified reasons or let go. Or they commit sometimes violent crimes repeatedly and repeatedly, and authority is taken away from the police to be able to do anything about it. What has all of this brought about, this sort of sense of really injustice in the name of justice? Well, listen to one. This is one report that came out recently. The bloody year of 1968, uh, it was said in this article, was an extraordinarily violent one in the United States, with the murder rate increasing almost 13% year over year, the largest such increase that had been recorded before or since. That was 1968. In in 2020, murders were up 21% according to FBI data. Data from the 60 largest U.S. cities collated by The Intercept found murders up 36% in those cities, almost three times the previously unmatched frenzy of 1968. You want to take away the authority to punish crime? Men are going to be given more over to do evil. If a judgment isn't executed quickly against an evil deed, then they're strengthened in their resolve to do crimes. Crime in New York City is steadily on the rise. Portland, Oregon continues to have riots and destroyed property with no consequences against those who are perpetrating it. The failure to have consequences for a crime or wrong only emboldens wrongdoing. We live in a fallen world. The premise behind those who go against that one premise, one ideology behind it, is that men are basically good. And they can be trusted to work this out on their own. It's not to say that punishment is the only way to address the fallenness of man's heart and crime and so forth, but it is an essential part of the solution. It is a part that has to be there. People need to know that actions have consequences. This is important for parents as they raise their children. It's important for a society. Actions must have consequences. I won't go through the whole list, but 
You're familiar with repeatedly in the book of Proverbs that the child or the foolish were made or need the rod to correct sin, to correct disobedience. Let me give you just a couple. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 13. On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. 13.24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Chapter 14, verse 3, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them, that is, protect the wise. And on and on it goes. The point simply being this, foolishness needs to bear the consequences of foolishness. So it can be exposed for what it is. And this works out in the spiritual realm as well. The, the, the primary focus of Solomon here in verse 11 is how this works out within the human realm among civil government. But it works out in principle in the larger realm as well. That when men fear, feel that they can sin without consequences, it emboldens sin. Listen to just a few passages. Psalm chapter 10 verses 5 and 13. His ways, speaking of the wicked, prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. Says, I will not be moved. Through all generations, I will not be in adversity. Verse 13. Why has the wicked spurned God? Here's the answer. He has said to himself, you will not require it. I can sin with impunity. If God said something is sin and men do it anyway and seem to get away with it, then their thought is that there is no God or that the God that there is is not authoritative or that he somehow condones their activity. In either case, there's a strength, strengthening to go on. There certainly is no fear of God before their eyes. So they can easily say, look, I'm doing what I want and I'm doing just fine. Away with your religion and your antiquated morality. I live as a free person, not under the restraints that you try to oppose on me. I live out the desires of my heart, and it's wicked to try to keep me from doing so. And this is strengthened because even in the midst of such rebellion against God, there is a kindness of God that he shows to men. Doesn't Jesus talk about this himself? In Matthew chapter 5, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he, in other words, showing love to your enemies. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Psalm 17, speaking of the wicked, he says, From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to babes. Even though they scorn God, even though they persecute God's people. In Psalm 73, he speaks of the wicked. He says, I saw their prosperity in verse three. There is no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They seem to just lavish in indulgence and ease. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, therefore, in consequence of that, in consequence of no consequences for their disobedience and wickedness. He says pride is their necklace, a kind of arrogance and haughtiness. The garment of violence covers them. Sound familiar? 
Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heaven. Their tongue parades through all the earth. What imagery. This is how it works. And so wisdom recognizes this and says things aren't as they should be. Sometimes evil is and very often does go unchecked. And I recognize but God is the one who's ultimately in control. Listen to just one other passage on this. 2 Peter 3. And again, tell me if this sounds familiar to our own context even. Know this first of all, but in the last days, mockers will come with their mockering, follow, mocking, following after their own lust. Where is the promise of his coming, they will say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so there is this kind of emboldenedness, even against God, of men, of fallen men, in the light of God's kindness and in the light of God's patience. And so he continues this in verse 12. Although a sinner, though, does evil a hundred times, and this is where wisdom comes in, and may lengthen his life, still I know this that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well, verse 13, for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. It may appear that way, but I know in the end, fearing God is the wisest response. It is the best response, very often in this life, but for sure in the life to come. Now, Solomon doesn't give a clear statement uh, here uh, of the justice of God in the eternal state. He doesn't, it's not a clear statement, but that is, that is clearly what was understood by him and by the Old Testament saints. They knew that there was a place in which things would be set right, and it certainly wasn't going to be by anything that they could observe necessarily in this life. But that still it would be better because God is not unjust to allow sin to go unpunished. And so the Old Testament saying understood that there was an eternal existence of men before God. It didn't have the clarity and the light of the new covenant and the appearance of Christ, but they understood that. that there was an existence that is physical and conscience and et- conscious and eternity and eternal. Let me just give you a few passages. Solomon's own father, David, Solomon's brother, if you remember, was taken by the Lord. Then David sinned with Bathsheba, and David said this, these famous words. But now he has died after he was mourning. He found, because the child was sick, he thought God might spare the child. When the child lived, he got up, he cleaned himself, put oil on his head, went to eat a meal, and they're like, "Ah, what are you doing? You know, when the child was sick, you're fasting, now he's died, and you're, you're fine. And these are David's words. He says, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Can I raise the dead? He says, no, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. The child was alive, though the child was dead. Job 19, 26 says this, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. 
Daniel 12, 2 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, and the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. They understood that there was a justice yet to come. But of course, this gets clearer in the New Testament as we consider this reality. Jesus said in John 5, Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In other words, those who showed themselves to have a sincere faith in God as manifested in their life and those who did not. Matthew 25, 46, after speaking of Christ's return, his judgment of the sheep and the goats, he says this, these, the goats, those who did not demonstrate the reality of faith will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous, those who did demonstrate the reality of faith, into eternal life. And of course, we know the end of the story as well with a clarity that was unknown even to the writer of Scripture, Solomon, at that time. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. That's God's justice. That's God's throne. And it is perfect justice. There's not one sin missed. There is not one rebellion that will not be accounted for, for those who continue in their rejection of Christ. We know that justice will be upheld in this universe. And that is why... We live by faith. We do not fully understand why things are allowed to pass in this world, but we do understand that in God's time, not necessarily here, there will be a full accounting for sin. And so we trust him. And so we trust him and we don't seek to mount up in an evil kind of rebellion. We don't seek to take justice into our own hands. We live Actually, quite differently than that. This comes together, and it won't be time to make much comment, but let me just read this. It's a familiar portion. How do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Well, with even greater clarity, Paul instructs the church in this way. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't take personal revenge. There is going to be a suffering of injustice. Every persecuted saint from Joseph to Stephen to Paul to Peter was a recipient of injustice. And at the center of it all and what is the foundation of our ability to endure is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who suffered the greatest injustice conceivable by men 
the Holy One of God, the only one who ever walked this earth after Adam at the beginning of creation who never sinned, received the most painful and gruesome and shameful death because of the injustice of men. And that's the one who did so on our behalf that our sin could be atoned for, that our sin could be removed so that we, who deserve the justice of God, would know only his favor and his grace. But here he says wisdom recognizes that it's not always going to work out right on earth. So though we should always be those who pursue justice, who fight for justice, who argue for justice, who work out justice in our own life, justice will never be perfect in this world, but it will be perfect in the end. It will be upheld. And the fact that Christ, the cross itself, gives the greatest testimony of that. How does it give the greatest testimony of that? Because the cross itself says that God will uphold justice. He cannot let sin pass by without a just recompense, even if it means in order to show grace, I have to lay it fully on my son. I have to lay it fully on my son, the consequences from the sin of my image bearers. Justice will be upheld, and the cross, more than anything, tells us not only of God's grace, but ultimately of judgment. They're both contained. And so we live by faith, the sentence isn't against an evil deed isn't always executed quickly here. Evil, therefore, is given to rise. But yet I know it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Remember the, the thief on the cross who acknowledged he was suffering rightly for his own deeds. Jesus gave him the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, you are experiencing the justice you deserve, but what I'm experiencing, which I do not deserve, I'm experiencing for you. So that even as we would face the, the inconsistencies and sometimes the, the it seems like the, the, the rise of evil, it will be accounted for. But what should really overwhelm us is that our sin was accounted for because it was laid in, on Christ. And so we fear God. We fear God and we trust him. Which essentially means this, that we live in open reverence for God. We live in open trust in God and his word, open obedience to him and his word. We're not ashamed of the truth. Though surrounded by those who hold lies, we are not afraid to openly praise him, though it will cost us. And we live with the inconsistencies of life because we know it will be set right in the end. And so he says in verse 14, there's a futility which is done on the earth. There are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Think of all the injustices, but put at the center of that Christ for us. But on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this is futility from a human perspective, but faith looks at the end. And says, I know it will be well with those who fear God. And then lastly, he, he applies essentially this tension with a, a common exhortation. He says in verse 15, to the end, So I commend pleasure. 
For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. So what is the idea here? This is the third point. That we live with integrity. Which essentially is this, that we rest in God's providence and enjoy the good gifts he gives us within the mysteries of life. Within the mysteries of life which are beyond our control. And that's the familiar theme. So I commend pleasure. Well, he's already made clear up to this point. We're not talking about sinful pleasure. He's going to end the whole, the book with saying, look, enjoy the good things God gives you. Pleasure is a part of God's goodness in this creation. There is a right kind of pleasure that we should enjoy. But remember this, God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the idea is enjoy life as God has given it to be enjoyed. Enjoy the good things that God has given, of which he'll, he has mentioned and will mention more, more. Enjoy food. Enjoy friendships and relationships. Enjoy marriage. Enjoy the kind providences of God, but enjoy them as God intended them. Because that is what God has given you. That is what God has given us in this world. And don't fret about those things that we cannot control. There's much to lament in our present day as there has been in days past and will be in days future. But God has given us mercy for today. God has given us kindnesses for today. God has given us good things to enjoy for today. Despite whatever goes on around, there are mercies that we can be thankful for and enjoy without regret. Do you have food on your table when you go home and in your fridge? Do you have a safety Some do, some don't, but most of us here. Do you have the privilege of prayer even when you don't have safety? Do you have the refuge of God that you can run to? Do you have protection from the elements, a roof over your head when it's cold or raining or snowing? Do you have health? Do you have the Holy Spirit who unfolds for you God's word, affirms to you the promises of God in Christ? who upholds you in trial, who teaches you wisdom when you're perplexed, who produces in you joy as you walk with him by faith, who strengthens you when others may disappoint you, who brings you truth when you need understanding. Do you have the Spirit of God who communicates to you the presence of Christ so that as Paul could say, though all abandoned me, yet Christ stood with me, the Lord stood with me. Do you have that? Then this is much to thank God for. And ultimately, even the trials, even the injustices that God's people endure here now because of the gospel, because of the promises, because of the ministry of the Spirit, ultimately are to drive us to Christ and to be instruments to increase our joy. It's really an amazing statement, but that isn't that exactly what James says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. So only the Christian can say then, in the midst of all of these things, that yes, there is injustice. Yes, 
I do live under human authority, which is corrupt and is far from perfect and fallible. And yes, I should pursue what is right and justice in this world and my culture as I can and in my own life. But at the end of the day, I'm not resting to find it here. This is a fallen world. I know that God will make things right. And so I want to live in the fear of him and live wisely until he does. Let me end with this. I, I, this is one of my favorite hymns. But this, this I think, communicates uh, the idea of the, the joy of our heart in the midst of this. He says... Uh, This is my father's world. This is just the last verse. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is not dethroned. Then there's two versions of the, the the second part. One says this. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven are one. And then the second version that I ran across this week says this. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. May God give us faith to live in light of his sovereign purposes and in trust. And may he give us wisdom in the days of heads, you know, as we work out how to live wisely under the authority that God has placed us under to the glory of God in Christ. Let me pray and then we'll take the elements together and remember the Lord's table. Father, thank you for your word. Strengthen us, O Lord, we are weak. Help us, our God, to see beyond what our physical eyes can see, to see with the eyes of faith, to perceive your working in this world, even when everything else would seem to be a testimony against it. But in fact, O God, It's not the case when we live in the light of your word, for you have told us that evil would rise. You have told us that men would compromise. You have told us that you would give over a nation and a culture to sin when they refused to worship you and instead worship the idolatries of creation and especially sexual pleasure. You've told us these things. You said that children would be disobedient to parents that love will go cold even within those who profess some religious commitment. You've told us it grieves our heart. We fight for the truth. It disappoints us so often, but yet it doesn't surprise us. We know that all things will be set right, not here. And so why we no less are saddened by the consequences of sin, and yet we are not destroyed, but we have hope. Because Christ our King is coming, and you have ordained the very remembrance of that in this table. As we together gather as your people of God, called into your kingdom, out of the domain of darkness, into fellowship with you, the eternal Son, indwelled by your Spirit, united together as the body of Christ, under one Lord, one faith, one Father, one baptism, one hope, one future and one inheritance that we share together. And we do this, as you've said, until you come. So to that end, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and remembrance that your kingdom is coming. We will actually see you face to face. We will actually have resurrected bodies that stand in the presence of your glory and counted blameless in Christ. 
we will live with you forever in eternal joys and delights of holiness and worship and love and blessedness. You've promised it, you've accomplished it, and you will fulfill it. And so strengthen our hearts and our faith to that end as well. And help us in the meantime to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another against the deceptions of sin, to encourage one another in the trials and the difficulties of life, to be there and as your body until we all are brought safely to our heavenly home. It is to that end I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.